welcome to the Wellness Journey podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I'm Dr. Mariette Danilo, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to journey with you through these challenging times and to hopefully provide you with information that will help sustain you. Our podcasts are aimed at keeping you healthy in mind, body, and spirit. This is Podcast 13. The title of today's talk is An Interview with Psychiatrist James McFadden. James McFadden, MD, is a board-certified psychiatrist who serves as medical director of the St. John Vianney Center. Dr. McFadden has over 35 years of psychiatric experience and 20 years experience working with clergy and religious at the St. John Vianney Center. Dr. McFadden graduated from Hahnemann Medical College, now known as Drexel Hill University College of Medicine. He pursued residency training in general psychiatry and a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Hahnemann Medical College and Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. He is a graduate of the Psychoanalytic Center of Philadelphia with specialized postgraduate training in psychotherapy. Dr. McFadden also maintains a private practice for adolescents and adults in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So we'd like to welcome him today. Dr. McFadden, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Dr. McFadden, you're a psychiatrist at the St. Javiani Center, but for the purpose of our listeners, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what the difference is between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Well, both are mental health professionals, and here at St. John Vianney, almost all of us have doctoral levels. The The psychiatrist uh, comes from a medical background. So uh, the psychiatrist goes to medical school and becomes a physician and then specializes in psychiatry and takes another four years or so of specialty training in psychiatric work. And then sometimes specialties on top of that as well. The psychologist typically studies through the university or academic system. They take a doctoral level, PhD or a doctor of psychology or one of the other social sciences, and they um, follow that with a good deal of clinical work supervised by experienced people. And some psychologists also go through a track where they do a doctoral dissertation, but not all. Oh, so the psychologist is a more, uh, probably more academic, and a psychiatrist can also prescribe medicine. He is a medical doctor, as, correct? As, that's right. As a physician, the psychiatrist uh, does the prescribing, and in this state, psychologists don't have prescription privileges, so the psychiatrists do prescribe medications. I see. And that's how we, we work as a team here with both psychiatrists and psychologists on every single patient's team. Oh, thank you. That's interesting. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do at St. John Vianney Center, 
And what brought you to work here with those who serve the church? Well, I'll start with what brought me here. It was actually a piece of good fortune. When I moved to this area many years ago, I contacted a classmate of mine who was already practicing out here. And she just happened to have been the current medical director at St. John Vianney Center, of which I knew nothing. And uh, she suggested I come and take a look at the facility and talk to her because they needed a few more psychiatric consultation hours. And I did so. And because I was interested in long-term residential treatment and team treatment, it appealed to me and I started working. And I was was assigned to a unit of all religious women. At that time, we had uh, the hospital segregated into women's units and men's units. And I quickly became very interested in working with the women religious and their communities, uh, got to know about their life, developed a good deal of respect for what they did, their ministry, and uh, I never left. I also became more and more interested in the intersection between spirituality and psychology and how that gets played out in people's lives Mm -hmm. and how both are useful in their treatment and their care. Mm -hmm. I've also been very happy with my colleagues over the years. We have a good team spirit here and that's appealing as well. And so it's, it's a pleasure to come to work. We hear that quite often. Now now I'm a member of the treatment team and there are two psychiatrists here. So one of us is on each team and we do initial assessments along with the psychologists and others. We, uh, make diagnoses, we prescribe medication when it's necessary, and then we we do treatment, and also we have some group assignments. Uh, the other fellow and I, Brett and I, both do some group work and um, are part of case management, case conceptualization all the way through. Mm. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, we we have a, the, the luxury, I would say, of having a good team, and it's always... Uh, pleasant to be able to collaborate with other people and find out their ideas. If things are difficult, bounce ideas off one another, support one another. Hmm. Well, we're hearing hmm. this a lot, that there's a, a, there is a, a tremendous opportunity for collaboration and creativity. And um, that, that team spirit does seem to be a common thread in uh, the interviews that, that we're doing here. I can um, imagine. Yeah. And, Again, the intersection, what you commented about the intersection between spirituality and psychology is fascinating. I mean, the universities throughout the country, is so much research going on. Uh, there's much more of an interest in that than ever before. Um, so it is an interesting topic area. Yep. In so, recent years, it's become a requirement to be JCH. The Joint Commission Accreditation requires that you address a person's spiritual dimension. But St. John has been doing that for decades. You know. Do you want to do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? So we have the accreditation, and what does that entail? And well, we 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 for many years we've been accredited by this organization called the Joint Commission. It used to be called the Joint Committee on the Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations. It's a it's a voluntary process that an organization submits to, and the Joint Committee. Joint Commission, rather, 
has a whole uh, panoply of standards from the board level all the way down to uh, nursing services, facilities, dietary, not to mention all the clinical work that uh, an organization has to meet all these various standards and show through their practices and records and whatnot that they are complying and in, in compliance rather. And we have a review every three years. And uh, so far we've been quite successful in meeting those standards and have maintained our accreditation over the years. It's a good exercise to sharpen uh, what we're doing and know what's latest expectations and practices. Uh, I'll, I'll toot our horn a little here. Uh, the last time that we did an accreditation, the reviewer asked if he could take with him some of our ideas about things that we were doing that he wanted to share with other organizations. Oh. So we're doing well. Oh, that's wonderful. So, um, so far in our podcast, we've been talking a lot about stress and its impact on the mind, body, and spirit. But can you start us off with your definition of stress? What exactly is stress? Well, our bodies are geared to respond to any upcoming challenge, whether it's preparing for some threat or some change, something we're anticipating, but we have an automatic hormonal response to these kinds of situations. People would, uh, for example, if anybody's been in an auto accident, uh, even if it's a fender bender, after it's over, they're aware of a flood of adrenaline. And this is part of our bodies getting ready for action. And there are several hormones that we unconsciously dump into our system to get ready. And what we, what we define as stress is, is our conscious experience of what this is like, how we feel in response to these reactions. Now, stress is normal. And it's protective, it's adaptive, except when it isn't. <laughs> and in those kinds of situations where there's a crisis, it gets us ready for the crisis. And that doesn't have to be a great big thing. Uh, and it doesn't have to be an unpleasant thing. People uh, feel stress in any kind of situation that involves a change, like having a new baby, getting married, moving house, uh, getting a new job, anything like that stirs up a stress reaction in people. They, that's far less prominent than what you feel in a dangerous situation, but it's there. And now we're feeling a lot of stress because we're all feeling uncertainty, change, doubt, fears and whatnot about the pandemic. So we're, we're in now a chronic state of stress that can be debilitating because it's subtle. It's going on all the time and it wears us down unless we can name it and work with it. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's working behind the scenes all the time. Mm, yes. I've heard, I know that this is where the, where your work comes in, where, um, we're looking at our own lens, our own filter, and our own interpretation of events, um, and that can help us mediate stress. And I think this is what psychiatrists and psychologists do in therapy, 
is to um, sort of help that, uh, organize that filter or get it to be clearer and um, centered better, a little bit better. Um, and how would someone know if they had too much stress or if they, how would they know if they were overwhelmed or in need of assistance? Well, it would be a matter of the intensity and the duration of what they're experiencing. Um, if someone felt chronically on edge or chronically worried, uh, tired, uh, overextended, irritable, those are all uh, common signs of people being under a lot of stress. And, that, and, and in the common parlance, people say, I'm so stressed. You know, what they're referring to these kinds of experiences and feelings. But in, in, currently in our situation, there are a lot of people feeling overextended and overstressed. Uh, so I would say to pay attention to how you're feeling and also how you're coping and how you're behaving, all those things will indicate if you're handling stress well or not. It can't be avoided, but it has to be managed and acknowledged. You can't not have it. But there are healthy and unhealthy ways to respond to it once it's there. Mm. So anything that's over is is a danger. You know, overwhelmed, yeah. <laughs> overextended, but also oversleeping, overeating, overconsumption of alcohol, over television, over news, you know, over, over. That's always a danger sign because people are trying to find something to help themselves calm down, whether wittingly or unwittingly, they're looking for things to try to get, get calm and feel more safe. Mm, that makes sense. So any, any kind of indulgence or obvious behavior change along with those personal feelings would be indications that there's too much stress going on. Right. And to your point about chronic stress, you know, this, this pandemic has been going on for months. And we're probably going to uh, be living with this for for a, lo a little bit longer. Um, and so well, that's part of the stress of it. Yes. Right. Right. And yeah. and and all of the unknowns. And of course, we we know that uncertainty breeds anxiety. But what uh, I imagine that there would be a great deal of mental health fallout as we're moving along. What are you seeing right now? And what do you believe are the current challenges with the COVID nineteen pandemic? there is a lot of mental health fallout. You alluded to this briefly earlier. Each person responds to the situation in, in a couple of different ways, as I think of it. We all respond in our built-in way because we're facing stress, so we can't avoid that. And on top of that, we each have our unique interpretation of what the situation means. And that can, that can be this, the, this source of a lot of problems, that individual interpretation. So if someone uh, interprets it in a way that increases their fear, or their uneasiness, if someone interprets it in a way where the, they end up feeling like a failure, or if someone is absolutely 
required to be working in order to maintain their self-esteem and they're suddenly unable to do so, that can be undermining and, and end up depressing or upsetting them in some way because they're not uh, able to, to get their usual source of gratification and self-esteem. That in addition, people who have pre-existing conditions are much more at risk in this kind of situation too, because we're adding unknowns, stress, fears on top of maybe anxiety, depression, substance use problems, and those folks are at high risk for, for uh, relapse problems. Add in isolation, decreased availability of services, decreased availability of other support people because they're uh, at, under a quarantine or, or alone and at home also. It's, it's a highly uh, charged environment uh, leading to these, these reactions and, and to a relapse risk. Sure. So we're, we're here, we're seeing uh, some relapses that are directly COVID related. I mean, just literally within St. John, but um, not as many as are going on out in the community. But we've certainly had some people come for assessment and even for treatment that were COVID related relapses, intense anxiety, uh, relapses of substance problems, depression, right. you know, when life was turned upside down. Yeah. Sure. And I'm sure they're within that. Well, that's the perfect storm, isn't it? The isolation coupled with everything you just mentioned. And I think uh, that um, that's where psychologists uh, really can do a good job in helping patients put things into perspective and um, center them and help them interpret events in a more positive and realistic way. Um, so I think that, that therein holds the value of therapy. Um, anyway, well, it helps I, to make it yeah. less personalized. Yes. And yeah. that, that, de, that, that decreases some of the, the anxiety and depression that someone might feel if it's not their problem only or all about them or their shortcoming and whatnot, absolutely. Right. And I'm sure you see people who are triggered that this has triggered other things, or trauma in the past, or um, some uh, some event uh, from the past that's being triggered, um, and and that would probably exacerbate their their reaction. But I, I, I wanted to go on. And, yes, it does. Uh, yeah, I wanted to go on and talk a little bit about anxiety because, I mean. I think everyone kind of knows when they have symptoms of anxiety or we know and we don't, and yet we don't know. What exactly is anxiety and how can we recognize it? Anxiety is an overreaction. It, it comes in various guises. It can be both physical and psychological, emotional, but the hallmark is it's a much stronger reaction to a situation than would be typically expected or warranted. Uh, everybody would, everybody has anxious and fearful reactions to literally anxious and fearful situations. And we consider that to be, you know, expectable, normal. But when those reactions are way too intense or ongoing, or even in response to no clear external threat or problem, then we start thinking about it as a disorder of anxiety. And if a person 
has an anxiety disorder, it can be expressed through their body. Uh, it can be you know, uh, certain kinds of pains, like one of the things is headache or a, an increased uh, disturbance in their gut with abdominal pain and diarrhea. Other people have a literal chest pain. And then in the, in the mental realm, it's a lot of worry. What if, what could go wrong? Or feeling, feeling a constant sense of some uh, immediate pending disaster. And that is a very uncomfortable way to live. Yeah. That on edge all the time or spending all day worrying about what might happen tomorrow or the next day. So rumination. Those, yeah. those are the kinds of, those, those kinds of experiences people are more apt to notice you know, as an anxiety problem. Whereas the more subtle things like in their, in a body reaction is less obvious, but, right. but fairly so, common. So uh, this could manifest itself by, with, um, uh, rapid heartbeat or uh, sweating or um, any of those sorts of well it, it certainly could on a regular on a regular basis a person could could experience physical symptoms rather than predominantly psychological symptoms especially if they're not prone to want to to see themselves as psychologically vulnerable right but there are also anxiety attacks that are called panic attacks Mm -hmm. that are dramatic physical reactions, pounding heart, lots of sweating, feelings of chest pain. And those are the kinds of attacks that often take people to an emergency room because they think they're having a heart attack, right. but they are not. It's, it's a discreet, powerful anxiety reaction that lasts 15, 20, 30 minutes and then subsides with the person exhausted. And they, most people experience them as, coming, quote unquote, out of the blue, un un unanticipated mm. and with powerful, powerful reaction. Mm. So what, what can we do about all this? I mean, what can, what should somebody do if this, I, if they're experiencing the sorts of uh, symptoms you just described and more specifically, if they experience a panic attack? Well, first of all is to acknowledge what's happening. If someone goes to their primary care physician to be open to the idea that this may be psychological, not everything is physically based. And if a person can acknowledge it, there is very, very effective treatment available for these disorders. Both There's a very effective psychotherapy treatment, and there's also medication treatment that can accompany the psychotherapy to make it more effective. Uh, that includes panic disorders and the regular, uh, what we call generalized anxiety disorder, the worry and living under constant fear all the time. They, they can definitely be treated. Now, it's also helpful to do some lifestyle changes, like any, uh, um, avoid stimulants like caffeine, mm -hmm. especially later in the day, uh, regular healthy diet, regular sleep patterns, avoidance of of illicit substances, absolutely. Uh, minimum use of alcohol. Exercise is a terrific anti-anxiety medication. <laughs> so regular, it doesn't have to be highly vigorous either, but people walking and moving, uh, yoga, tai chi, almost anything that engages a person's body is helpful for both anxiety and stress. 
So there are things that people can do for themselves for certain. Terrific. Well, I have a friend who, you know, she's, she had a couple of panic attacks and she said it was so scary. She said, I felt like I was going crazy. Am I crazy? How common is this and how treatable? I mean, you're just, from what you're telling me now, it is highly treatable. Do people it recover? Is, yeah, and it is not yeah, do people recover and return to ministry? Absolutely. Uh, panic attacks are not uncommon at all. Uh, I can think of a number of priests we've treated that had panic attacks as part of liturgy or before a, a homily. We're having a panic attack in the sacristy before, before a liturgy. That could be quite disruptive, as you can imagine, but those situations are definitely treatable. And those folks almost always return to ministry. They're able to uh, get effective treatment. Sometimes medication is helpful in, in helping prevent. And a lot of times a person is able to think of some uh, and understand some things about themselves and their own psychology that contribute to the tendency to have those attacks. And with that understanding, they gain a lot of confidence and that helps them not feel so afraid and vulnerable of the attack. And we, we also teach them what to do if they get an attack so that they don't feel like a deer in the headlights. But knowing more about themselves and having effective treatment makes them far less vulnerable for the attacks to continue. And panic attacks are not always just freestanding. They're, they can be embedded in other kinds of problems. Like people with depression can have panic attacks. People with other kinds of anxiety disorders have panic attacks. So if we treat that and they understand that better, then their vulnerability to the panic attacks improves. And yes, they do go back to ministry. That is, that is not a condition that, that generally prevents someone from returning to ministry. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, you spoke a, a little earlier about people who have pre-existing situations, so to speak. What advice would you give to people who are in recovery and maybe struggling right now? Well, this is tough because of the isolation. Mm -hmm. The hallmark of successful recovery treatment is not to be isolated and, and not to go it alone and to, to be involved in fellowships and to be open and to be honest. And all that is much more complicated now. And a Zoom meeting is, is not the same as an in-person meeting. We hear that almost universally. Mm. So it takes, it takes an extra effort and there's extra challenge. I think that to understand that and to acknowledge that just as anybody could benefit from acknowledging the nature of the situation and to be, shall we say, gentle with oneself about the fact that you're uh, confronting something complicated and different is very important. And then to go out of your way to try to continue using your healthy mechanisms, like staying in touch with people, not staying isolated, mm -hmm. recognizing what the stresses are so that you don't respond to them with substance misuse. Uh, it, it requires a lot of attention, I would, I would say, and, and honesty about the situation. And then 
sharing with other people to the, the extent that can be done. And there are opportunities still for people to share, whether it's about substance misuse or any other kinds of problems in this, in this environment. We have, to, we have to arrange them and make time for them, but it can be done. But it, there, is, there is a definite increase in relapse rates going on all over the country right now. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Yeah. We, we've been the talking. Problem, oh, of course, the other, go ahead, Doc. I might add another thing. The situation itself is highly stressful, as you mentioned, the uncertainties and the isolations and whatnot. So people who have past patterns of dealing with that through, through substance use are going to tend to think about that again and, and lean in that direction. They have to be very careful not, not to entertain that to the best of the degree that they can. Mm. It's, it's somewhat understandable, but it requires a lot of effort on their part. Yeah, which, which brings me logically to, to my next question. We've been talking about the need to keep an eye on our brothers and sisters. So what are some warning signs that someone may be struggling and need help? And when should we not mind our own business? Well, the struggling science, the, the science and other people that they're struggling are the same things we should be observing in ourselves. If the other person seems overextended, overwhelmed, not themselves, closing down, isolating, overindulging, these are all signs that they are laboring and it never hurts actually to ask someone how they're doing. Uh, we, we're afraid it will make things worse or alienate them. Uh, just like the age old, I shouldn't ask anybody if they're self hurtful or suicidal because it'll make them suicidal. It doesn't. People appreciate our interest. There are, there are more effective ways to do it and less effective ways to do it. I would suggest, for example, that if, if we were going to talk to someone else about them, to say it from the perspective of, I have been feeling, or I have been noticing such and such in my life, and I, I notice that you seem to be struggling too. That's a much more open way of, and not non-threatening way of saying to the person, you know, you look pretty bad. <laughs> you know, that, that doesn't go as well as I'm concerned about you. And, you know, we've all been struggling. How are you doing? I, I think it's absolutely uh, worthwhile to do that because that, that may be what the person needs to just get going and starting to talk about what they're, what they're feeling. And they, be, they may be immensely relieved that they're not all by themselves. They're not the only one. Because right. that's often what people feel. I'm the only one going through this. I'm the only one feeling this way, whether it's pandemic or anything else. Yeah. So. Hmm. So we've, we've talked about this on the former podcast too, this feeling of, well, creating this non-judgmental open space, trust being tr a trusting person. And, and at one point or another, all of us in our lives is a healer and, and needs healing. So you're going to be, so, to approach someone in from a place of understanding that yes, you know, I've been there too, you know, and not um, 
not as, you know, I'm the doctor, you're the patient. Um, I think that helps people. Would, would you agree with that? Did I, is that something that, that you would agree with? Absolutely. In fact, um, one of the uh, elements of, of St. John Vianney Center residential that we hear over and over and over when people are leaving is it was so healing to be with other people who accepted me, acknowledged their problems. We could talk openly with one another. And these are not the clinical staff they're talking about. These are the, their fellow peers, the resident, the other residents. And that that was a huge healing experience to be with people with whom they could share and be honest in a mutual way. It's, yeah. it's amazingly powerful. Yes, and that may, may so, and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be in a residential treatment setting to happen. No, yeah, that's right. That maintaining that human dignity that we all mm -hmm. have, yeah. So, yeah, that's been very interesting. Uh, you've been really helpful. Are Are there any other words of wisdom you can give our listeners? Uh, what would you most want people to know and understand about anything about our work, about your work, about Saint John Vianney? What would you like them to know? Well, we've, we've um, talked about most of these thoughts already, but as far as um, final thoughts, I think that it's, it, it is always helpful, certainly in the midst of a pandemic, but always for us to be mindful. And that is what's going on inside me, what's going on around me, how am I responding to what's going on inside me and around me, to be accepting of that, non-judgmental. It's really helpful to not be judgmental with ourselves to the best that we can. So this is where I am. This is what's happening. This is how I'm responding. That's okay. That's just how I'm thinking and feeling right now. And then to go from there, if we, if, if we can start with that accepting stance with ourselves, which would probably take more easily with another person. <laughs> but if we can do that for ourselves as well, yes. it's a good starting point to then deal with things like, well, gee, I'm, I'm in a situation of a pandemic that we've never been through before. No wonder I'm kind of concerned. No wonder I'm scared. No wonder I'm stressed out. Now, what am I going to do about it? And when you start from that basis, it's much easier to think reasonably and come up with good solutions for how to take care of yourself as well as to take care of other people. Yeah. And then finally, I think never, never, ever underestimate the value of connecting with other people and, and using the supports that we all have in our lives. Yes, that's These are things to live healthfully. They're also things that we do here in other ways within the treatment program. But I think we can apply them universally. Right. So I hear you saying the value of self-compassion and self-care, being intentional about our self-care, and relationships, reaching out, being intentional about staying connected with others. And really, no one, you know, no one is without some degree of fear during this pandemic. Um, and um, to be able to, we, we are in the same boat, so to speak. Um, but there are ways of, um, of getting through this, navigating 
um, in, a, in a more positive way. And I always tell people, you know, many, so many people I speak to are dreading uh, what could, what's not going to happen and what the, the, and I, and I always say, you know, if we can anticipate something dreadful, why can't we anticipate something, something wonderful might happen, some new discovery and some, so very wonderful things can happen. And um, I think we have to, we're people of hope and we need to remember that and keep that in balance. But you've been, absolutely. you've been so helpful you know, today. Go ahead. I was thinking, as you were saying, that uh, not only we can take comfort in this too will pass, because it will, we just don't know when. Yes. But in the meantime, as you mentioned, we can focus on a vision of something for the future that maybe we would like to improve on what we had been doing and to focus not only on what we're missing, but also people are using their ingenuity to come up with something new and life-giving given the current situation. And sometimes people are finding that they really like that, that they've come up with some things that are beneficial that they're going to continue to use in their life going forward. There is, it, you don't have to, it, it, it all depends on how you define it. It makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah, we call it our lens, but thank you. Those are such wise words, Dr. McFadden. Thank you so much for being with us today. We've learned so much. Uh, we will certainly keep you in our prayers as you continue this very good work. Please keep us in your prayers. Absolutely, and thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Doctor. Bye-bye now. Bye. You've been listening to the Wellness Journey podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I hope today's interview with psychiatrist Dr. James McFadden helped you learn more about our work. You can find all our podcasts and get additional information and resources for clergy and religious by visiting our website at sjvcenter.org. Remember, we're companions on the journey to stay healthy in mind, body, and spirit. We are the St. John Vianney Center, and our mission is you. Thank you.